there's certainly much more to talk about about the the catastrophe aspects alone. Is there anything more, Anneli, you feel you want to touch upon with that, or should we on move on right now to the cosmic pattern aspect of this to tie tie it all together? Want me to uh, elaborate a little bit on because uh, I mentioned the Shoemaker Levy Nine event that was essentially um, a a fragmentation event that we witnessed back in 1994. Um, uh, Henrik, I'm sure you remember it. I sure do. Uh, we've talked about it before in the past as well, but you're right. Maybe not everybody uh, do remember it. Well, uh, in a in a concise explanation, the Shoemaker, Carolyn and Gene Shoemaker discovered. <laughs> along with um, David Levy, discovered that there was a, uh, a comet emerging from behind Jupiter. Uh, I believe this was in uh, March of 93. And uh, just when they discovered it, they realized that it was in the process of fragmenting. The nucleus had uh, passed close enough to Jupiter that the strong gravity field of Jupiter had uh, essentially torn apart the nucleus. And so... Over the next three months, they tracked its uh, its pathway through space. As the pieces began to separate, they were able to define 21 separate pieces of what had been originally a, a single nucleus. And I think after three or four months of observation, they had, uh, had its uh, relative velocity and they had enough of its arc in space to define the entire ellipse. And so then when they progressed its motion forward, they realized that after it looped around the sun this train of debris was going to come back out to the across the orbit of Jupiter right at the precise position that Jupiter would actually be at uh, in July of the next year. And uh, just as predicted, uh, the 21 pieces did collide with Jupiter and we were actually able to witness a, a cosmic impact event. I think they considered it was the most watched uh, astronomical event of the century, even though we couldn't see it directly because the impacts occurred on the surface of Jupiter that was turned away from us. We were able to see the consequences of these impacts in the form of giant plumes that arose up out of the, the depths of, of Jupiter's mass. <clears throat> so uh, at that point, many of the critics, uh, you know, the 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 people, the skeptics and the eye rollers and so forth, that when you talked about cosmic impacts influencing Earth history, a lot of them fell silent or actually became converts and said, well, yeah, maybe maybe planets do. Maybe asteroids and comets do impact planets uh, more frequently than we previously realized. So I think that uh, that Shoemaker-Levy 9 event was important because it precipitated a, a major paradigm shift in our understanding of our, our place in the universe. And so uh, subsequent to that, there's been lots of evidence emerging that uh, these multiple impact events may be far more common than, than anybody had previously realized. Uh, what are called catena or uh, crater chains are being found on the surfaces of all of the of the moon and the, the, the silicate planets and the, the satellites that have solid bodies. Uh, also, it appears that a number of uh, crater chains have been discovered on Earth. There's an interesting chain of um, of uh, craters or anomalous, what have, what have been referred to as crypto-explosion structures because they're not all proven to be craters. But there's a chain of about eight of them at the 38th parallel that reach from Kentucky to Kansas in the Midwestern United States. 
that almost certainly I, I believe will will end up being demonstrated to have been uh, a crater chain event, a multiple impact event. At least three of these eight uh, anomalous uh, features have been proven to be impacts, and they're all uh, dating to about the same uh, time period. So, um, and then in uh, Africa, there's also a what appears to be a, a, a triple uh, impact event um, that would have occurred approximately during the Jurassic time. So my point is that evidence is emerging that Earth has in the past been subjected to um, not just random single impacts, but also these multiple impact events. Um, in fact, at the Cretaceous tertiary boundary, the famous um, you know 65 million year ago event that ended the, the reign of the, the dinosaurs, it appears that that there wasn't necessarily simultaneous impacts, but clustered impacts uh, around that boundary, uh, suggesting that during this interval of time, there was an enhanced uh, population of, of objects in the inner solar system that had the potential to strike Earth, uh, with the greatest one probably being the one that uh, left its crater buried below the Yucatan Peninsula. But Indian scientists have discovered what appears to be a giant crater on the floor of the Indian Ocean that they've termed, that they've named Shiva, uh, hmm. that appears to be the, uh, dating to the Cretaceous tertiary boundary. And it actually appears to be bigger than the one uh, discovered under the, uh, under the Yucatan Peninsula. So there may have been um, multiple impacts clustered around that particular geological boundary. Um, so that seems to be uh, interesting, which kind of brings us into the idea of, of periodicity in the events. It, it appears that um, that cratering events or impact events are not necessarily um, randomly and uniformly distributed through time, but uh, more and more evidence is emerging that they actually may be clustered, that there may be periods of clustered bombardment. And getting back to what we were talking about earlier with regards to the ice sheet, it's interesting that there have been most of the studies of the, the, the consequences of impact events have, have related to what happens when an object strikes the earth. Um, the nature of the crater that it forms, the, the ejecta that's um, pumped into the atmosphere, um, the fallback breccia, which is the material that falls back to the earth, uh, producing a secondary range of consequences. There have been also a number of studies, not as many, but there have been studies done what happens when um, an object strikes the ocean. And of course, when an object like this strikes the ocean, particularly like an asteroid, it's going to cause a number of things simultaneously. One is going to be the injection of large amounts of, of uh, water vapor into the atmosphere. And another consequence, and then probably the most direct one, is going to be the generation of uh, extremely large tsunami waves, which brings us to um, an interesting discovery, which is controversial at this point, but I suspect it's going gonna, it's gonna to bear out. And this was the discovery of a, a, uh, a possible crater on the floor of the Indian Ocean that's uh, only about 5,000 years old. It's been given the name Burkle Crater. And how this was first discovered was by examining uh, landforms on the southern uh, tip of the island of Madagascar that uh, they um, appear to be water laid. Um, they have all of the uh, characteristics of of a, a large um, seismic sea wave making landfall, rushing inland for several miles and then washing back out to sea. Except that these landforms are 600 feet thick. They were first, I think, studied in the early 2000s 
And what made them particularly interesting was the fact that um, embedded throughout the, the, the material forming these 600-foot-thick hills, if you will, pointed hills, uh, were deep-sea microfossils. And they weren't... Um, they were all extant microfossils, the kind you would find in a modern, the modern Indian Ocean. But the most interesting thing about uh, the phenomena was when they began to examine the microfossils under a, teles under a microscope, they discovered that in many cases they were fused with cosmic metals, the kind that would be delivered to Earth uh, via a cosmic impact. Mm -hmm. So the landforms um, actually... Look, if you look at them from space, and anybody can go to Google Earth, and if you look at the uh, the southern end of of Madagascar, you they stand out very clearly. Um, and essentially, what happens is when the, the water of a of a tsunami washes back out to the ocean, it pulls the the land forms into um, chevron shapes, and the chevron shapes essentially point down current so that the direction that the that the current is moving, it will define these chevron shapes, almost as if arrows, directional arrows, indicating the the direction of of water movement. So, by looking at these chevron shapes, uh, they they pointed to a very definite region of the Indian Ocean. So, when the group, the Holocene Working Group, they're they're referred to as. Uh, went to that particular region that seemed to be the, the locus, the center of, uh, of this event, the epicenter. Uh, about two miles down, there was a 12-mile um, hole on the bottom of the ocean that appeared to be a crater. Now, obviously, in order to prove this, somebody's going to have to go down and probably extract samples directly. Uh, but it has all the appearance of being a crater, that's on the bottom of the ocean floor. And um, given the size of the thing, um, it would have been an extraordinary event. Now, the dating of the microfossils in the Chevron Hills in Madagascar shows this event, shows that they're about 5,000 years old. So this is interesting because if this was an asteroid or a comet that fell into the uh, Indian Ocean 5,000 years ago, generated tsunamis that now, when you look at the Chevron Hills, the thickness of the hills uh, would be an indication of the minimum run-up height of the wave when it made landfall. So, I mean, just what we've seen in recent years with the with the tsunami in Indonesia in 2004 and the recent tsunami in Japan, the the devastation it can be caused by a, a 30 to 50 foot tsunami. Um, it becomes almost incomprehensible to try to imagine what a 600-plus foot tsunami would do when yeah. it made fall. Hmm. But uh, it would certainly generate uh, and affect all the coastal regions of the Indian Ocean. And if you look at the configuration of the Indian Ocean, the, um, the Sea of Arabia constricts into the Persian Gulf. And any seismic sea wave moving north up into the Arabian Sea would condense and be compressed as it moved into the narrow constriction of the Persian Gulf and probably attain uh, pretty extraordinary depths. And so it's very possible that this wave would have struck um, the, the Tigris-Euphrates Valley and moved considerably north up the valley. Um, and that certainly, in my mind, could have given rise to the, uh, the, um, the stories of Noah's flood 
or possibly the flood uh, recounted in the Epic of Gilgamesh. Um, and it's interesting when you read the biblical account, it certainly does sound like, um, you know, uh, Noah was probably in the region of Ur, which would have been, you know, southern Iraq, and ended up, uh, you know, in the foothills of the Ararat Mountains, which would have been to the north, which is exactly where a, where a great uh, sea wave would have moved. And in the description from the Bible, it's rather suggestive because, you know, it talks about how the um, fountains of the great deep were broken up. And the windows of heaven were opened and the rain was upon the earth for 40 days and 40 nights. And essentially, if you had an asteroid fall into the ocean, the first thing you're going to have is, you know, if we use the metaphor of the fountains of the great deep for the ocean, certainly describing them as being broken up as the asteroid strikes the ocean would be um, uh, would be a uh, pretty apt description. And yeah. then it would be followed by uh, the rain out of the uh tremendous amount of, uh, of water vapor that was injected into the atmosphere. And so, you know, when you read the uh, story of Noah's flood, in that context, it almost begins to make sense, you know, in a naturalistic way, if, if we are open to the possibility of these kinds of cosmic events that we've been talking about. And then, interestingly, Noah, with so many of the other flood events, you know, um, it has this moral connotation to it, which certainly seems like would be a natural thing for survivors to do, uh, to impose a kind of a, a moral interpretation on these natural events. Uh, but there's also, there's another consistent element to the story that we find, whether it's, you know, Utnapishtim or Deucalion or, or Zisithrus or any of these, uh, you know, culture heroes that survived great floods is that through some means or mechanisms, they had, they had foreknowledge of the coming or impending event. Right. And, hmm. Well, that's, that's a bit interesting, isn't it? Tell us a little bit about that. <laughs> well, uh, you know, obviously, you know, I mean, in, in the typical religious context, that would be given a, a supernatural interpretation. But, yeah, like referring back to Shoemaker-Levy 9, um, clearly here we had a sense, if you will, of a, a prophecy. Well, you know, in, in a year from now, Jupiter's going to be struck by 21 objects. Um, if a similar event had happened and we were able to track the motion of a disintegrating comet nucleus or an asteroid uh, around the sun and realize that at some future date it was going to intersect the Earth's orbit at the precise time the Earth was going to be there, uh, one could, you know, in a sense, invoke a prophecy saying, you know, the world will be destroyed on such and such a date. Um, you know, in the case of Shoemaker-Levy 9, the astronomers were actually able to pinpoint almost the hour of arrival and the uh, region of Jupiter where the impact was going to occur. So, I mean, we're, we're stretching it a little bit here, but, you know, it, it's, you know, it leads us to the possibility that a, a culture with enough scientific sophistication could predict such an, an event perhaps years in advance. Um, even as we're looking at... Um, you know, the possibility of, of, of Apophis um, intersecting the Earth's orbit several decades from now. Yeah. Hmm. So, you know, again, if, if we, you know, if we just assume that folks back then were scientifically illiterate, then this is not really a possibility. But if we're open to the, the possibility that perhaps there was a, a greater degree of scientific literacy than, than we're currently aware of, and that someone, you know, five or six thousand years ago had the enough 
uh, scientific sophistication to to actually predict such an event, then we have a means of saying, well, here's how we could uh, have foreknowledge of such an event without necessarily uh, relying on supernatural explanations. How, how it, advanced do you think the technology would have to be? And is that uh, is that plausible in your in your view? You know, a, a telescope is pretty sophisticated, but you know, you wouldn't necessarily, you know, to be able to to develop that lens. The lens is necessary to peer into space. And given that we certainly know that ancient cultures all over the world were obsessed with the astronomical environment, um, that was certainly expressed through their architecture, but certainly also through their writings. Um, uh, you know, they were astute observers of the heavens and were able to, you know, we, we, cert we admit now and acknowledge that they were able to predict eclipses far in the future. Um, you know, we know that the that their monuments were um, constructed that gave them a great deal of uh, precision in their observations of events along the plane of the ecliptic. Um, you know, uh, there's an interesting work. Let me see. I'm trying to remember the name of the author. It'll come to me in a second. Um, about 10 years ago, he proposed that uh, in his book, and it should come to me in a second, but he proposed that um, many of the ancient temples that that now, you know, clearly have astronomical alignments in them were actually used as a type of celestial observatories. And they, that he opened the, the door to the possibility that, uh, that they were used for predicting, you know, not only the movements of planets, but possibly comets and asteroids that could be observed. Now, now you know, now could it, could it also be that, Maybe they didn't see the the. I mean, comparatively, they're they're small objects, uh, comets and, and meteorites, as opposed to to planets out there moving along. And it could be that if it's true that there is a pattern to this or a cyclical um, frequency to this, that it simply could be predicted if they could if they if they were in tune with these patterns of when they come around, basically. So they maybe they didn't build a telescope literally and saw it in that way, but they. Uh, they knew that you know every X amounts of years or what what have you something of this nature uh, seems to occur. Could that be the possible explanation? Most definitely, I think that could be a possibility. Um, you know, and and I think the evidence is emerging that that there is a periodicity to these uh, types of events. That you know what I mentioned earlier, clustering. Um, no, we don't have to go to necessarily that they were able to build telescopes. Although what I was implying was that the ability to build a telescope may not be as, as advanced. I mean, we know that um, the Arabs in the 12th century were able to build, uh, you know, create refractory lenses and magnifying lenses and so forth. Um, so, you know, I was just suggesting that it might not be out of the question that somebody could have developed some kind of technology that would allow them to, to see things which much. But now bear in mind, though, the comets are, you know, quite clearly visible, much more visible and apparent in that, the sky. That's right. By the way, I just want to mention that I know that Robert Temple um, wrote about this as well. The ancient, ancient lenses uh, seems to be evidence that this was found, um, you know, back in the 6th century BC, maybe even further back. I don't know how far back he, he goes. It goes back to Egypt, I think, as well. Uh, I, I don't know if the book is called The Crystal Sun or if that just was an article I remember reading about that. But, but in any regard, I just want to put it out there that this is one of the theories. Uh, and and that might be what you were alluding to first as well, Randall. I don't know. 
It is. And, and that's one of those things I'd certainly like to research more because I'm, I'd be very interested in what specifically could they have known um, through, you know, through their own observations and so on. But yep. like you said, um, if there's a cyclicity to this, that knowing that there are epochs where, um, you know, events of this nature would become, we would be more susceptible to these type of events. Um, yeah, then then perhaps they were basing some of their predictions upon upon those events um and 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 i think that is the case i think the the evidence suggests um two things that that the ancient concept of time was was definitely more cyclical than linear um you know the the judeo-christian tradition we kind of come from a definite creation started on day one of the, the the seven days and then it'll go until judgment day so time begins with day one and ends with judgment day, and it kind of moves in a linear fashion. And um, uh, we are kind of now more in a uh, recognizing that the traditional cultures tended to look at time as more cyclical um, rather than linear. And, um, you know, the idea being that, you know, obviously in our day-to-day and year-to-year experience of, of life, you know, we, we think of time as cyclical and our whole, uh, you know, our whole routine of life is based around cycles, much, much less so now as we live in a more advanced technological society. But certainly if we go back 100 to 200 years ago, when the, the means of um, subsistence was primarily agriculture, we were most definitely our, our, you know, our lifestyles were definitely linked in with the cycles of the season and so forth. But still, you know, obviously we, we get up with the in the morning, we go to work, we come back, you know, we go to sleep at night and our, our whole routine is, is, is based around the, the, the daily cycle or diurnal cycle of the planet rotating on its axis. And then we go through the cycle of the year, which is, you know, we have the, the, the seasons of the year and we have our uh, seasonal celebrations and our holidays, of course, all of which have very ancient roots and all of which are ultimately linked to astronomy or astronomical cycles. And of course, anybody who looks at astronomy realizes that it, you know everything is cyclical. Whether you're talking about the uh, you know the motion of the the moon, which gives us our month, and the four phases of the moon, giving us the four weeks, or you know the cycle of the sun, kind of gets us to the idea that in the ancient uh, concept of of time, there was there was a uh, sort of a, a progression, if you will, of various scales of phenomena. So. As as the cycle of the day was to the cycle of the year, then there was a a greater year, um, which uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the book by um, Ham, ever heard of the book Hamlet's Mill. Sure have. Uh, oh yeah, we've mentioned it many times on the program without a guest. Yep. Yes. Well, you know the contention in that that book is that the, our knowledge that the knowledge humans' knowledge of uh, processional cycles, processional motion, goes way way back. Yeah. Uh, preceding Hipparchus by uh, you know, thousands of years, and that the archaic model of time was built upon this motion of, of the processional cycle. And uh, so this idea of the great year uh, has always been very intriguing to me in this idea of cyclical time. And that's kind of how it, where it links in with the idea of, of geometry, as I'm trying to explain in, that, um, in the, the video that we've posted on cycles of catastrophe, is that when we start looking at the um, the cycles of time and the way they were measured and the numbers used to measure these cycles, we discovered that the same numbers 
are intrinsic to the measurement of time as well as to the measurement of space. And so uh, rather than trying to go into an elaborate explanation of that, which is, is very definitely helped by using visuals, uh, if someone goes to the um, goes to the YouTube and uh, looks at the at the um, the first um, the first preview of the uh, of the DVD, it's it's very visual. So you'll be able to see how we're trying to link uh, time and space through the numbers of geometry, the sacred numbers of geometry. And, I, and I'll, I'll just give you a quick example. We know that the uh, motion of the Earth's axis is not stable. Uh, in space, as, as I'm sure you're well aware of, Henrik. Yeah. And um, it's shifting around almost in, in an hourglass pattern. And this cycle runs roughly 26,000 years. Uh, modern astronomy has, has uh, measured the current rate at just slightly over 50 arc seconds per year. If you actually run the, round it off and run the math, you discover that 50 arc seconds per year translates into 25,920 years for the cycle. And usually in most astronomy books, they'll, they'll give the rate of precession as approximately 26,000 years. Um, well, if you divide that into four seasons, if you, if you, we take that as the basis for defining the great year, which is essentially what uh, Hamlet's Mill, uh, the, the contention of Hamlet's Mill, uh, and that within that great year, which is analogous to our annual year, there would be 12 months and four seasons, each of the, the, the great months or cosmic months or sometimes referred to as platonic months because of Plato's interest in these, this phenomena uh, would then be one-twelfth of that 26,000-year cycle or, or more precisely 25,920. One-twelfth of that would be 2,160 years. And essentially because of this shifting of the Earth's axis, the Earth's equator is also shifting. Well, what this does is the shifting of the Earth's equator causes the, the vernal and autumnal equinoxes to be shifting through the signs of the zodiac at the same rate that Earth's equator is shifting around. So that means that if we use think of the vernal equinox, uh, it's going to shift through all 12 signs of the zodiac in, in 26,000 years, spending little over 2100 years on average in each of the, the the 12 signs so the 12 signs which were actually originally defined by the constellation or star groupings that occupied that region or that slice of space uh the fernal equinox moves through those 12 signs pro progressively uh actually we say precession because the vernal equinox is moving in a direction opposite to the normal movement of the sun and the planets as they're seen to move through the signs of the zodiac. In any case, um, you know, everybody's heard of the, you know, the age of Aquarius and, um, you know, that we're coming out of the age of Pisces into the age of Aquarius. Mm -hmm. yep. Lesser known preceding the age of Pisces was the age of Aries. Preceding that was the age of Taurus. Well, when we talk about that, you know, not so much in the new age sense, but in the astronomical sense, we're talking about where is the vernal equinox? The vernal equinox being the position of the sun, uh, let's say, at the, at the moment of spring. At the moment when the sun has returned from the southern hemisphere, stands directly over the equator, day and night are of equal length. Um, the vernal equinox, where is the sun at that moment? Okay, that defines 
you know, the vernal equinoctial point. And that point, there's nothing there really. It's just the position of the sun at that moment. And it's shifting through the signs of the zodiac, making a complete cycle every 26,000 years. It spends 2,160 years on average in each of the, the, the 12 zodiacal signs, which would be equivalent to the 12 months of our annual year. And just as our annual year is divided into four seasons, so the ancients divided the great year into four seasons and, and would oftentimes signify those four seasons by the four fixed signs of the zodiac that were found uh, at the center of each of the three signs comprising a season. We find that symbolism uh, presented for example, in the prophecies of Ezekiel and the Bible in the Old Testament and the prophecies of St. John the Divine in the Apocalypse of the New Testament, when they're talking about the four beasts or the four creatures, they're depicted also in much of the um, architectural iconography of the Middle Ages uh, in the form of the bull, the lion, the eagle, and mm-hmm. the man. Yeah. And them represented on the portal of judgment, for example, going into Chartres Cathedral which I interpret as being a statement regarding the, the cyclical nature of time. The, of course, the more orthodox explanation is that the four creatures represent the four evangelists, which, of course, is not excluded um, by accepting that there's also an astronomical correlation. In this case, obviously, the bull being Taurus, the lion, Leo, Aquarius being represented by the, the human figure or the angelic figure and uh, Scorpio being represented by the uh, the eagle, um, which was oftentimes substituted because Aquila, the, the constellation of the eagle, actually can be seen to rise uh, at the same time as Scorpio. Okay. Hmm. Well, so that, that's a hint, that's a big hint. That means, well, maybe we'll talk more in detail about that later. But it means that uh, the the knowledge about that has been passed down, and it's it, it's there for those who have uh, well have the capability of seeing it. I guess, huh? With the uh, with eyes to see and ears to hear. That's right. Yeah. Um, yeah, and then the um, yeah. So you can't many of these cathedrals. I mean, if you travel over Europe and go into the the cathedrals, whether you know Romanesque or Gothic cathedrals, you find the, this this effigy of of Christ in glory, surrounded by the four ages of the world. Which you know, I definitely see that it maybe is a sort of an esoteric reference to one of the fundamental tenets of sacred writings all over the planet is that there is this idea of of cyclical time and key points within there um you know i think that there's a more a, a more universal uh judeo-christian tradition that has sort of tended to be lost with with the rise and dominance of you know certain orthodoxies which which i think is much more in line with earlier traditions of of cyclical time you know and i think mm-hmm. that hints that come through in the biblical narrative i mean even in the um the creation account when we when uh, Yahweh gets to um, creating Adam and Eve, you know, and he gives them their marching orders and tells them, you know, be fruitful and multiply, replenish the earth and subdue it. Um, certainly, I think that's a hint there in the King James English that um, you know he's not telling to replenish the earth; he's telling to to replenish the earth, almost yeah. as implying that you know there had been a previous destruction and and uh, hmm. and that you know the bible itself doesn't uh exclude that possibility because remember after after cain rises up and slays abel and he's exiled 
uh, to the land of Nod, what does he do? He immediately goes out and first thing he does is find a wife. There's a lot of people there at that stage, yeah. There were a lot of people there, so um, <laughs> there was something else going on. I mean, obviously, I think when we look at the creation account that's presented in the Bible, we're only seeing just uh, perhaps a mere fragment of a fragment of... Uh, One side of the argument, uh, as I like to put it. Exactly. Now, this is very interesting. Um is there anything in this pattern then that then, that we can connect with the uh, uh, with the potential impact events that we talked about before in the in this particular pattern about the great year uh, and and we can divide it up in in many segments? Are they connected in your view? Uh, I would certainly consider that a, a a direct possibility because when we look at the astronomical realm, everything is cyclical and. Um, the you know there's a school of uh, British neo catastrophists uh, headed by Victor Klub, who um, who have concluded that there is a cyclical nature to uh, cosmic impacts, and there's there's various schools that have looked at that. Um, you know that you have um, some researchers who've come to the conclusion that the, that the uh, record of mass extinction events uh, implies a 26 million year cycle. Um, which I find interesting because if the great year, as defined by <clears throat> Hamlet's Mill, is 26,000 years, the processional cycle, then 26 million years would be a thousand great years. So, you know, it's interesting. A bigger cycle, you know, it's, it's, these are, you know, fractal uh, numbers in a sense, that, or, or these are representations. You can add zeros to it and still find the same kind of message or, or numbers in there, basically. Exactly. And, and, um, there is an emerging, uh, well, there's a, there, there's a fairly plausible scientific theory that, you know, it's the motion of our solar system about the galaxy. Um, and I've seen, interestingly, I've seen some studies that would suggest that the orbit of our solar system around the galaxy is in the neighborhood of 260 million years. Um, but as the solar system uh, rotates around the galaxy, it oscillates above and below the galactic plane. So one theory that's been put forward is that perhaps uh, as the Earth crosses the plane of the uh, the galactic equator, if you will, there's a greater concentration of debris uh, distributed around the galactic equator and that <clears throat> there will be epochs in which uh, our solar system is going to be moving through uh, these greater concentrations of galactic debris. Now, when we when we talk about the architecture of the solar system, and and you mentioned to the average layperson the solar system, they generally think of the sun, the Earth, the moon, and you know the rest of the planets uh, going out to to Neptune and and Pluto. You know whether Pluto is a planet or not, but usually that's where the solar system ends. But really, the solar system goes considerably beyond that, uh, really up to about fifty thousand astronomical units which is an astronomical unit being the distance from the sun to the earth. Well, within that much greater definition of the solar system, you have uh, the realm of the comets. You have the Kuiper disk, which essentially begins to phase in outside the orbit of Neptune and extends out and then phases into what's known as the Oort cloud, which is a great spherical shell of comets, perhaps with hundreds of billions of comets, um, that surrounds the solar system and in effect reaches almost halfway to some of the nearest stars, which are, you know, roughly four and a half light years away. Um, these comets 
these these hundreds of billions, perhaps even trillions of comets that are left over, if you will, from the formation of the inner solar system are in a very uh, quasi-stable position. They're slowly orbiting the sun way, way, way out there in deep, dark space. Um, but they're very um, susceptible to being perturbed. Um, ordinarily, not much is going to be out there to perturb them. But um, if these ideas of the solar system crossing the galactic plane have merit, it's possible that during these episodes, um, the comets in either the Kuiper disk or the Oort cloud are jostled enough that it can send them cascading towards the sun. Um, interesting mathematical studies that have been done in recent years suggest that the placing of the outer planets happens to be just precisely what would needed, uh, what would be needed in order to set up um, what has been described as a bucket brigade, uh, a delivery system of comets from outside the orbit of Neptune to inside the orbit of Jupiter. Um, <laughs> once a comet falls within the sphere, for example, the gravitational sphere of, of Neptune, um, Neptune will do one of two things when it encounters the comets within its, within its range of orbit, and that is either accelerate them or decelerate them. If it accelerates them, it tends to send them back out again. But if it decelerates them, they'll, they'll fall towards the sun. And as they fall towards the sun, they'll come within the orbit of Uranus, and Uranus will, will do the same thing. It'll either take the comets and accelerate them, uh, when they encounter them, or it'll decelerate them. By decelerating them, again, it'll hand it off to Saturn. Saturn will essentially do the same thing and hand them off to Jupiter. Now, Jupiter, you know, the thunder god, the god of thunder hurling his thunderbolts, as depicted in the ancient myths, uh, is, a, is a perfect way to depict Jupiter now, who uh, picks up the comets handed to him by his father Saturn and hurls them towards the sun, and uh, where they become earth crossers. And so... What could happen uh, in the galactic uh, sphere of influence is that perhaps every 26 million years, using that number, uh, there, the, Earth, the solar system passes through the galactic plane. The galactic plane causes a consequent destabilization of the, the cometary sphere, which could send literally thousands of comets traveling inward towards the sun. Um, hmm and ultimately reaching the inner solar system where they begin to go through uh, a hierarchy of disintegrations. And those disintegrations um, could produce all kinds of effects. And I, for example, one of it would be, you know, if you look at the life cycle of a comet, when it's, when it's out there in deep space, it's essentially hibernating. It's in a deep sleep. Um, just it's this frozen mass of... Uh, of uh, a great diversity of different kind of material, gases, volatile gases, uh, organic material, carbon dioxide ice, water ice, etc. As it comes into the inner solar system, it becomes activated and it begins to devolatilize, it begins to tumble in its orbit, it begins to spew material into space. And like we've seen with Shoemaker-Levy 9, uh, they can ultimately, a single comet nucleus can actually break apart and, and spawn uh, multiple smaller comet nuclei. And it's possible that many of the comets that we see out there now, for example, Comet Enki, may have been part of a much larger progenitor comet um, mm -hmm. that the British School of Neocatastrophists that I mentioned earlier may have entered uh, our solar system uh, coincidentally, about 26,000 years ago. 
Um, <laughs> so comet comes into the inner solar system, begins to undergo this hierarchy of disintegrations, um, ultimately spawning multiple nuclei from a single nuclei. Those nuclei in turn can disintegrate. Uh, the final fate of a comet is either it's going to be swept up by a planet or it's going to fall into the sun. It's going to disintegrate further and form a meteor stream. And that meteor stream can further uh, disintegrate, basically just forming uh, a stream of dust in space. Um, now, what's interesting is if the Earth encounters some of that dust, it's possible that that dust could induce uh, an increased opacity of the atmosphere, which could cause the onset of a, of a cosmic winter, if you will. And, and that's one of the theories, I think, one of the more plausible theories, I think, for what could cause the onset of an ice age. Um, now, so do you think that these things, as you talk about the bigger cycle here, that that's the the driving force behind it and hence this is potentially why we get a, a a fractal a division of these you know master numbers if you will that you've mentioned um and hence we could see a, a, on a minor scale these things play out down to our solar system and then you know further further out to go the, the the longer the time cycle seems to be but they still seem to stick to the same kind of numerological patterns if you will yeah that that's what it that's what it appears, yes. I mean, it appears as if there's perhaps a, uh, a galactic uh, level that, that on the larger scale, the, gal the galaxy is modulating the influx of, climate, of comets to the solar system. Once they come into the inner solar system, the planets the, the take over and determine the, the orbital periods of the comets. Um, and, and if the flux of comets to the inner solar system is based upon like – for example, the 26 million year cycle, um, then it would make sense that there are epochs during which Earth's encounters uh, would be considerably enhanced over the normal background rate. Then once once uh, you've got this uh, episode of, of enhanced flux of comets in their solar system, once they've gone through their normal life cycle over a period of, you know, say several tens of thousands of years, They'll finally, you know, dissipate in one way or another, and then the cosmic background will will subside in activity for a while. Um, and it appears as if, you know, that when when you look at um, the evidence for climate change over the last, say, hundred and fifty thousand years, which can now be con reconstructed with a high degree of accuracy based upon ice core samples. Uh, it certainly seems that like the last 10,000 years of the Holocene has been considerably calmer compared to some of the changes that are have documented have taken place uh, repeatedly throughout the Ice Age. Um, you know, typically what we see, the largest swings in temperature throughout the Holocene appear to be, uh, you know, one to four degrees being the maximum. Uh, there was around 8,200 years ago, there was an event, uh, a, a multiple, maybe a two to three century, very cold event in which it's believed that the global climate cooled by as much as four degrees. Well, when we go back to the Ice Age, we can see coolings and warmings that are, you know, four and five times that extent. Uh, you know, when we look at our modern climate uh, and we talk about global warming, just as an example, we're mm -hmm. looking at uh, a warming of uh, going back to about the year 1850, the end of the Little Ice Age, to the present of about 0.8 degrees centigrade. Um, well, 0.8 degrees, you know, is considered to be significant enough to, to cause noticeable changes in, you know, 
in um, vegetation patterns, in migratory patterns of animals, in the weather, et cetera, et cetera. Well, you know, we're going back, when we go back to what I mentioned earlier, like these um, transitions between the uh, Balling Alarod Younger Dryas, followed by the Younger Dryas Preboreal transitions, we're looking at 15 to 20 degrees centigrade shifts in perhaps as little as, as two or three years. Um, and those seem to have occurred with a fair amount of regularity throughout the Ice Age. Um, it, it's very difficult to explain that by, um, you know, purely terrestrial mechanisms. Yeah. <laughs> you know, begin to expand our understanding of the environment to include the cosmos. Uh, then we have several possible ways of, of doing that. For example, you know, the most effective greenhouse gas is water vapor. And that's if right. you were drop a, an asteroid into the ocean, we're, that's going to create a, a pretty uh, impressive canopy of water vapor uh, that's going to be, you know, distributed pretty widely th- uh, around the planet. And that could have a very considerable short-term extreme warming. Um, you know, let's say that... Uh, it, it's By the way, it, it, that's, it's a good example because it's funny to... To listen to, um, you know, when we hear about alleged, you know, anthropogenic global warming that with our cars and all that, we, we, we play a huge impact on the environment when we seem to have no clue about the larger cycles of these things and how the climate is always in flux, always changing, although they might be tied to a pattern that you're talking about now. But the fact is that there's so many variables um, that it seems to be kind of Kind of stupid, actually, in my view, to blame it all on human activity. What, what do you think, Randall? Well, I, I agree. I, I think that what's happened is the that the whole issue of climate change has been appropriated for political purposes. And, yeah, it's ridiculous to try to blame all climate change on anthropogenic influences. Um, you know, there's a article come out in Rolling Stone, I think, this month by uh, Bill McKibben, which is really, to me, epitomizes the kind of the hysterical view of anthropogenic climate change. And I, and I wouldn't argue that we're not having an influence on the climate. I think clearly we are. But there are so many factors, like you mentioned, and so many variables. And when you, when you do even a cursory study of paleoclimatology, it becomes apparent that what we're experiencing now is, is really relatively mild compared to what's occurred in the past. Oh, yeah. <laughs> without any help from us whatsoever. Um, That's right. Now- Briefly, before we carry on as well, because I wanted to ask you where you consider us to be currently in the great year. Because again, this this becomes interesting when we talk about the the cycles and and the patterns. Because uh, if we can locate us currently, we might get a clue of of I don't know what we're in for or what some of the potentialities are here. And there's certainly been a lot of people arguing: Are we entering into this so? called Age of Aquarius, or are we still hundreds of years away? Um, and people have connected it with, uh, you know, the, the two, the, the great year with the Yugas and all that as well. Where, where do you stand on that, Randall? Where are we right now? Uh, from, you know, from the astronomical realm, I mean, if we actually look at the position of the vernal equinox, it's still clearly within what is the present day constellation of Pisces. Um, and it actually won't be entering the star pattern that we call Aquarius for about another half a millennium. Um, it's pretty far away, but but what does that mean in the larger context? Or is, are we still? F- I mean, people connect, you know, energies, if you will, and, and and different properties to these to the cycles to the to the patterns uh, in the sky, if you will, that we're we're going through. 
and some people have argued that we still we're already feeling the the you know the the, the repercussions of going into it or changing it slowly although it's far away what do you think Oh, I, I think so. I mean, you know, even going back, you know, hey, I'll admit, I'm a child of the 60s, okay? <laughs> uh, so, you know, the age of Aquarius, well, uh, you know, I, it clearly shifts, you know, it, it indicates a shift in, in our understanding, our, our thinking, or how we think about our, you know, our role in the world and, and how things happen. Um, and, and just the fact that people begin talking about it, you know, um, you know, the... You know, I, I'm sure that one reason you and I are sitting here talking about it and I'm talking about the age of Aquarius is, you know, what do I know about the age of Aquarius, you know, when I'm coming out of high school other than that it was, you know, a hit song out of out of the, the musical hair, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, so it, it's clearly shifting, indicating that we're becoming aware of these things and that there's a shift in, in human consciousness just by becoming aware of the fact that, hey, there are these celestial patterns and hey, you know, our ancestors were very interested in these things and we kind of forgot about them. Now let's take a new look at them in the light of, you know, everything we know about, you know, modern science and, and so forth. Um, so I think there's definitely, you know, the, 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 the question of consciousness that goes along with this and the consciousness change. Um, I just, you know, I like to get try to get folks to get onto a little bit more solid basis with understanding that, well, no, there's, there's real astronomy behind this. And when you start talking about the age of Aquarius, we're not just talking about some new age la-la. We're all going to be going around with flowers in our hair, having group hugs. But that's actually, you know, a, a much greater phenomena that we have to begin to address. And that is, is that you know, global change is very real. It's been ongoing. There's evidence that it's cyclical. There's evidence that our ancestors were very aware of this, even obsessively uh, interested in it, so that it it entered into their rituals, their celebrations, their their sacred writings, their architecture, their symbolism, et cetera, et cetera. And now we're reconnecting with all of that. Now, when you ask the question, where are we in the cycle? Well, this you can't really answer because, you know, somebody in you know, remember, um, I don't remember which disciple it was, asked Jesus in the book of Matthew in the 24th chapter, well, when is all of this going to happen? He says, hey, I, I don't even know. Only the big guy upstairs knows. I don't know. Mm. You know, <laughs> However, when we look at the, um, if we look at the pattern of climate change that we can now reconstruct using, um, you know, all kinds of paleoclimatological proxies, which are ice cores and speleothems in caves and, uh, you know, cores extracted from the sea bottoms, um, varves, uh, patterns in, in glacial lakes, it's, you know, patterns of, uh, of vegetation change, um, pollen studies, all of these things coming together have shown a pattern of, of climate change that seems to oscillate between two extreme modes, We'll call one the glacial mode, the other interglacial mode. If we want to think of it in, in um, you know, more traditional terms, we could define it as the winter of the great year and the summer of the great year. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the the big uh, we have the four the, the seasons of the, of the great year basically. Yeah, seasons of the great year basically.